包来。Missing and unidentified people are a major focus of our work here at the Fall Line. We've also talked about who goes missing, who gets media coverage, and the uneven resources allocated in cases. The complexities of solving unidentified persons cases, doe cases, are a major point of discussion too. There's both the work of identifying the deceased and in determining the way they died. And if they were the victim of a crime, then there's another case altogether. A homicide to be solved. When we talk about databases that focus on the missing and unidentified, we're generally speaking of national projects. The most well-known of those is NamUs. That's the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, which is the official governmental system for recording missing and unidentified persons cases. But not all cases make it into NamUs. We often encounter both missing persons and unidentified decedents who have not been entered. That's because some states just don't require reporting, and even when cases are in NamUs, there's a learning curve to using it. The interface isn't very user-friendly for non-professional users. Actually, many of the professional users on their side of the data entry they have issues too. Another major source of information on unidentified decedents is the Doe Network, run by our friend Todd Matthews, and that is a great resource. But his volunteer team is focused on keeping up with the entire nation, plus international cases that are submitted. They are also focused primarily on unidentified decedents. Missing people can be researched at the Charlie Project, but a one-woman team cannot possibly enter every case in the country. And over at NICMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, both missing persons and unidentified decedents are featured. But it's difficult to search through their website, and their service does have an age cap. So, what about regional databases? The short answer is there is no standard approach. Some states or cities have listings for cold cases. Some departments list their current missing persons. But many times, we run into web pages that haven't been updated in years, and dead hyperlinks, and 404 errors. There are people who are working to change that, though, to create comprehensive networks and databases that capture, share, and analyze information about missing persons, unsolved homicides, and unidentified decedents in their areas or communities. Depending on their research interests or their funding, the focus of their databases are going to be different. For instance, we featured the work of the Sovereign Bodies Institute, which is compiling data on missing, murdered, and unidentified Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, and the LAMP database that stands for LGBT Plus Accountability for Missing and Murdered Persons. We featured both on the show before, and you can find links to those episodes in the show notes. This episode. We want to tell you about a new project based in the South and brought to us by anthropologists based at Mississippi State University, Dr. Jesse Goliath and Dr. Jordan Linton Cox. Dr. Goliath is a biological and forensic anthropologist, and Dr. Linton Cox is a cultural anthropologist. So, from an outsider's perspective, we might assume experts on the opposite sides of the spectrum—one studying life and one studying death. But anthropology just isn't that simple. 
As I've worked to complete my first book, which is focused on unidentified persons' cases, forensic science, and the identification of a Jane Doe victim, I have met many invaluable experts. One of those people is Dr. Jesse Goliath. Dr. Goliath is an assistant professor of biological anthropology in the Department of Anthropology and Middle Eastern Culture at Mississippi State. Dr. Goliath is also a senior research associate for the Cobb Institute of Archaeology and the primary forensic anthropologist at MSU. For my book, Dr. Goliath spoke with me about ancestry estimations and skeletal analysis. That's a topic that's usually thought of as determining a victim's race. Some of Dr. Goliath's work has focused on critically examining whether ancestry estimations or racial estimations, at least in the way that they've been traditionally used in developing profiles, are actually helpful in solving cases. Another aspect critical to the discussion is whether these ancestry estimations can or do capture how a victim might have identified in life or how their community or family might have identified them. A good example might be this. Think about the complexity of ancestral, racial, and ethnic identity in people whose families originate in the Dominican Republic. An unidentified person whose family is Dominican might have ancestral roots from Africa, the indigenous Taino population, and from Europe. How a forensic anthropologist or medical legal professional might interpret their physical or skeletal characteristics and how their family and friends would identify them, and most importantly, recognize them, might be very different. And if forensic art or description just doesn't match, a victim's loved ones can completely miss or simply not recognize a report. Doctors Goliath and Linton Cox aren't only focused on doing more to accurately identify the dead. They want to find the living, too, and to better understand who goes missing and why they go missing, and what can be done to improve the outcomes for the missing in Mississippi before they become Mississippi's unidentified. Another way of saying that is, how do we find missing people more quickly? What factors lead to a person going missing? Who are the missing-missing? That's a term we've discussed on the show before. People who are more likely to become unidentified decedents in Mississippi. The doctors will employ a more interactive approach than most academic or governmental databases have allowed for, and that especially suits Dr. Linton Cox's interdisciplinary focus. She's an assistant professor of cultural anthropology in the Anthropology and Middle Eastern Studies Department at Mississippi State University and has done work in many areas, including, quote, racial and ethnic formation, transnationalism, diaspora nationalism, and political economy. One of her most applicable areas of expertise, and one we'll be talking about today, is geography and the technological tools that allow experts to analyze regions based on any data set, and that includes missing people and unidentified bodies. Doctors Goliath and Linton Cox are launching the Mississippi Repository for Missing and Unidentified Persons. This project will serve multiple purposes. It will operate as a public, searchable database of missing persons cases in the state, kept up to date by faculty and students, and shared with the public both on a website and via social media. Now, I've seen the mock-up of the pages that will soon be live on the website. They're laid out in an extremely user-friendly fashion, with all the information on a single page, and that's in the public-facing portal. 
There will also be a private access portal for medical legal professionals, just as in NamUs, where they can access additional material. I especially like that with everything gathered on a single page, I can view all the information about a missing person or an unidentified victim at once without clicking between tabs. Contact information, photos, descriptions of the crime scene or circumstances of disappearance. On NamUs, a less experienced user can easily miss this kind of information. When I asked Drs. Goliath and Linton Cox to explain the difference between their database and the more traditional sites like NamUs, here's what they told me. Quote, Our database will serve as a hybrid website with clearinghouse features like NamUs, but will also provide more interactive story mapping features, links to other local missing persons organizations doing this work, and summary stats and data on missing persons and health disparities across the state. Users will be able to search cases by standard demographic data like sex, age, and location, and will be able to do general searches for unidentified and missing persons cases. And Dr. Goliath added, quote, Unlike NamUs, there will be no required sign-in or registration for current missing or unidentified persons' cases. However, personal identifiable information will be redacted. Special access will be granted to researchers who want to look at resolved case data and for law enforcement agencies who need more case information than in the public access interface. The Mississippi Repository plans to keep up-to-date case contact information, too. That's something that's easier to do in a regional database, of course. On NamUs, as researchers, we often find that the listed case contacts have moved on or are years out of date, and we can't reach anyone. That's the nature of a national system that is not regularly checked. There are so many cases, it's difficult to do so. But in a regional database, things are easier to manage. There are a lot of reasons to focus on regional cases. As for Drs. Goliath and Linton Cox, there were multiple inspirations to begin their work. They told me that, in part, they were inspired to do so when they saw the massive coverage for some cases, such as Gabby Petito's, and far less coverage for other cases, especially in BIPOC communities. And if you're unfamiliar, that's an acronym that stands for Black, Indigenous, and Persons of Color. As Black, Indigenous, and Hispanic or Latino individuals are statistically overrepresented among the missing and unidentified in the U.S., that lack of coverage remains a special concern. One thing that Drs. Goliath and Linton Cox hope to do after launch is offer the database in Spanish as well. That's something that we've seen a great need for in our own work as well. Like the Murder Accountability Project, MAP, and the LAMP database, the Mississippi Repository hopes to not just host missing and unidentified persons data, but also to examine it visually by plotting that data on maps that help them find clusters of missing or unidentified persons in certain areas of the state. That's the place where Dr. Linton Cox's expertise comes in. She's had experience in GIS, or Geographic Information Systems. According to the USGS, quote, A Geographic Information System, GIS, is a computer system that analyzes and displays geographically referenced information. It uses data that is attached to a unique location. If, for example, a rare plant is observed in three different places, GIS analysis might show that the plants are all north-facing slopes that are above an elevation of 1,000 feet, and that get more than 10 inches of rain per year. GIS maps can then display all locations in the area that have similar conditions, 
so researchers know where to look to find more of the rare plants. By knowing the geographic location of farms using a specific fertilizer, GIS analysis of farm locations, stream locations, elevations, and rainfall will show which streams are likely to carry that fertilizer downstream, end quote. The same technology can be applied to the places we live and even to ourselves to determine correlation. For instance, you could start with the question, where are the streetlights in my town? You could then determine which areas had the fewest. You might then look at other things those areas might have in common, demographically. Similar to the murder clusters that the Murder Accountability Project finds, identifying areas of the state where more people go missing or decedents remain unidentified can help signal other issues that need to be addressed. For the repositories mapping, imagine not just a list of missing people or unidentified bodies, but a map that shows you where they're concentrated in your city or state, demarcated by population demographics. That could show the researchers, in a way that a list just can't, which communities are experiencing disappearances, where bodies are found, and where they're most likely to remain unidentified. So once those issues are made clear, solutions might include more support for families like victims' advocates, pressure on media to provide more equal coverage, or funding for medical examiners, DNA testing, and the like. The data they produce as researchers at a state institution can be used in many ways, even as their database, which will be publicly accessible, serves as a practical resource for searching and listing the cases of the missing and unidentified. Improving communication both with the public and with the medical legal professionals like law enforcement and medical examiners is one of the many topics Dr. Goliath and Dr. Linton Cox are interested in. They believe that in examining these subjects, we can improve our reporting on cases and our understanding of not only the best methods to identify decedents, but to look at who's going missing in the first place and why. Currently, NamUs lists 168 missing people in Mississippi and 49 unidentified decedents in the state. The Doe Network lists 43 unidentified persons. According to the Clarion Ledger, Mississippi doesn't require NamUs entry of missing or unidentified persons, so there's no way to estimate the total accurate number of missing persons or unidentified remains in the state. In an interview with the newspaper in 2019, a Pascagoula police lieutenant speculated that, quote, there could be 100,000 people who've gone missing in Mississippi in the last 20 years. Data from NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, and NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, can help, but those statistics are often misused or misunderstood. For instance, Statistics of missing children are often wildly inflated because the same child may be reported missing multiple times in a single year. Even when they return home, each of those reports counts as a separate case added to the total. Add to that the difficulties of how statistics are figured beyond raw numbers, how, for instance, ancestry or race estimates are recorded by officers on scene or in examination of skeletal remains or the limitations of any given system for recording race, gender identity, and other potentially identifying aspects. And trying to parse both who was missing and how they might identify becomes much more complex. The doctors tell me that collecting data on the missing and unidentified of Mississippi has not been easy. 
and that's mostly because each governmental agency has its own way of accounting for people. NCIC has different reporting guidelines than NamUs. For instance, the use of Hispanic or Latino as a category is used in NamUs, but not in NCIC. Then there's the category of other and how it's applied in terms of race, which can shift from one database to another. This is all important because Dr. Goliath and Dr. Linton Cox are especially interested in collecting data on cases that receive less attention and fewer resources, and then sharing that data with the populations who are most affected. They want their database to be user-friendly, accessible, and they plan on sharing both cases and what they learn about the missing and unidentified with as many people in Mississippi as they can. To do that, they'll need to use social media, direct interaction with communities, and conversations with professionals in the field. Now that the professors are just a few weeks away from the launch of their website, we sat down to talk about their work and what they hope the Mississippi Repository for Missing and Unidentified Persons will accomplish. As we begin, you'll hear us reference the work at LSU. You might be familiar with Louisiana State University's work under a different name. The school hosts the renowned FACES Lab, which stands for Forensic Anthropology and Computer Enhancement Services. In addition to their incredible work in forensic reconstruction, the department hosts a missing and unidentified repository that is accessible to the public. So, we begin with a conversation Dr. Goliath had with the Louisiana Repository's director, Dr. Teresa Wilson. They began with an issue that Louisiana cases weren't trackable through Mississippi because Mississippi's tracking just wasn't where it should be. Dr. Teresa Wilson, who runs the Louisiana Repository, said, Jesse, we have a black hole. Every time people leave Louisiana to go east to Mississippi, we don't have a contact person. We have no one to reach out to if a person goes missing outside the state of Louisiana into Mississippi. And so as a data set or as a data kind of disparity, there was no person, there was no entity, there was nothing to actually build a missing person connection or potentially solve a case in Louisiana if they were coming from or leaving Mississippi. Secondly, when I was working with a bunch of law enforcement agencies asking, hey, how do you track your missing person data? How do you track your unidentified person data? They didn't have an answer for me. They said that, well, sometimes we get emails about this. Sometimes we talk to people through our Facebook or our social media connections, but there wasn't any one place that was holding all this information. There are silver and amber alerts that are sent out throughout the state to different agencies, but no one was really collecting that data in any systematic way that any of the agencies that I work with could tell me about. And so there was nothing that they could do or say specifically that could help Louisiana. And also the fact that they couldn't help each other if there was a missing person or unidentified person across counties and across cities. When I developed this project with Dr. Linton Cox, my initial thought was if we have knowledge, knowledge is power. The data that we can gather, the potential information we can get from this repository in terms of where people go missing, who goes missing, why they go missing, can eventually get to those who have the resources, the legislative power to make those changes. And the goal I've always been is that I want to have less missing and unidentified people in Mississippi. And so if there's any way I can do that, I will use this project in that way to do so. 
And sadly, as being a forensic anthropologist, I'm a last responder. I find people deceased. I'm part of the recovery efforts of that. And so as one aspect of why I wanted to start this project was I want to be able to give a voice to those who are missed and not be the end result that they are ultimately recovering after they've been deceased, that we can actually try to help law enforcement agencies develop strategies, develop techniques, maybe even funneling resources to finding where people go missing and why do they go missing. A phrase that Dr. Goliath said there stuck with me. The idea that forensic experts are last responders, the last people to see a case rather than the first, and how that changes their interaction with the individuals they study and the cases they try to solve. One thing that a number of anthropologists have explained to me is how important it is to get to the scene of recovery, or at the very least, to see photos of the scene of recovery, where a body is found, as often as they can. That's because there are context clues and environmental clues and factors at the scene that can have an enormous impact on how they approach both identification and understand the effect various elements may have had on the bones. It follows, then, that understanding more about a victim's life would aid them even further. Another kind of evidence or context lies in the life of the missing person or unidentified decedent. In the second case, of course, we don't gain the knowledge until after the person is identified. But understanding what factors affected them in life For instance, was there media coverage of their disappearance? Were they reported missing? If so, what information was shared with neighboring law enforcement agencies? Were searches performed? Were families able to contact the media? Were they able to receive support? What reporting requirements might have made a difference in their cases? As Dr. Goliath explained, What we wanted to do was really make this data presentable not only to law enforcement agencies, but to the general public, to students of criminology, forensic science, and anthropology to start looking at this data. There's a lot of potential research projects that could come out of this. There's a lot of potential legislation that could come out of this. For example, Louisiana State has a state-mandated requirement that they have to keep and archive missing persons data. There's no such law on the books in Mississippi. And so this repository would be a framework and ultimately a catalyst to getting legislation passed through the state to have this data collected, archived, and ultimately used for both law enforcement and research entities. And I think on that point, I'd love to hear a little more about how you feel the repository will function differently from other what we might call clearinghouse databases. What are some of the gaps or issues or perhaps just unexplored areas with other sites that you're looking to address? Well, one of the main differences I see in this repository is that we are already starting our partnerships and collaborations with nonprofit organizations. We already have Missing Sippy as a nonprofit that we're working with. We're also working with the Mississippi Missing and Unidentified Persons Organization, MMUP. And these are just grassroots efforts of local Mississippians who are trying to get information, get data out to the public about missing and identified people. So that's one aspect. A lot of the clearinghouses kind of have this very federal, very restricted 
kind of data access and data entry system. And so from the beginning, we've actually talked to local grassroots efforts to help with that data collection. The second aspect is that a lot of these clearinghouses, they remove data. Once the person's been recovered or found alive or dead, they tend to remove that information. And so we don't actually have any archival data potentially for how long it took for this person to go missing or recovered. Another major difference are the maps we've mentioned in this episode. Making that interactive geographic information system programming available to the researchers who are studying the database, even as they enter new cases, will allow for constant analysis of the data. Dr. Linton-Cox discussed what might be done with that information. So one way that we can do that is by spatializing the data, determining where the different points are that people are going missing and what are the factors that are occurring in the geographic spaces that are impacting these cases. So those might be looking at questions like, what are the socioeconomic aspects of this area? How much wealth is there? Education? How many police stations are near this area? One thing Dr. Goliath and I have talked about in the past is how objective data really is. This is probably something that you've thought about before, too. We're often given numbers and statistics, and we assume they're true because, well, they're numbers. But how the analyst arrived at their conclusions, who was considered, how those conclusions were reached, what assumptions were made at the beginning that could affect interpretation, those are all issues that can affect finding clear statistics. This can be present in work regarding missing persons and unidentified persons, too. When we try to arrive at total numbers, or consider who's most at risk of becoming long-term unidentified, are we failing to count cases? Are we failing to look at where cases may have originated? Dr. Goliath and Dr. Linton-Cox term this, quote, bias in unidentified data in the conference poster they prepared on the topic. I asked them to tell us a little more about that. When we think about missing identified people, we tend not to think about the unmissed. Those are individuals who are already socially marginalized due to substance abuse, potential lifestyle practices, those who are victims of human trafficking or sex trafficking, those who are kind of on the margins of society. And so what I want to do is try to better understand why they are unmissed. And even the fact that there's environmental issues that are causing this as well, that we have hurricanes, we've got tornadoes now, we have other natural disasters that are causing people to go missing. And without having a repository, a database, something that law enforcement and community organizers can look at to help identify these people, those individuals end up being missed or unmissed if they have no family connections. A lot of the Populations we have here in Mississippi are also undocumented. So undocumented immigrants coming into the state that don't have any familial attachments to any particular area in Mississippi ultimately end up being unmissed or missed because of just those social barriers or social conflicts that exist. And so part of the work that we're doing here is to highlight the stories of these people through the kinds of ways in which we position our data, the kinds of ways in which we create access to this data, but also in kind of the ways in which we even think about the kinds of data that we want to use to highlight the experiences of these individuals. So again, using ethnographic data, going and talking to people in these communities, in these areas where we're seeing 
clustering using the data. And so how does looking into the history of Mississippi, how does focusing on the state help us to better serve the communities that are experiencing potentially higher rates of their loved ones going missing? Doctors Linton Cox and Goliath sent me a list of some of the specific research questions they're hoping to examine with the data that they just mentioned. Here are some of the items they'd like to include. What cities or counties have the most missing persons? Who is most likely to go missing in the state? And that's demographically, based on things like age, sex, racial or ethnic background, etc. If found, what is the average time of recovery? For regions with higher missing persons numbers, what are the law enforcement resources available in those regions? What are the health resources available to people in those regions? What are the census demographic data associated with the county or city in relation to federal or state funding, income, cost of living, and other factors? Is there a high rate of other factors such as human trafficking, organized crime, etc.? One thing we discussed during our interview was a point we made at the beginning of the show, that narrow descriptors can affect the ability to solve a case. In terms of missing people, gaining accurate information to include, whether that be about race, ethnicity, gender identity, even weight or height or age, is generally much easier. There are records, family, friends, and pictures that can offer a visual aid. But even records can be difficult in projects like assessing who is missing and who remains unidentified in the U.S. As we said, every national system has its own process, and that includes methods for counting racial categories, asking questions about ethnicity and gender identity. For the Mississippi Repository's beginning data, they weren't, as we mentioned, able to get an official NCIC number of Hispanic or Latino people missing in the state. And that's because, in NCIC's data, white and Hispanic are grouped in together with white. However, the category of Hispanic is, as we said, its own separate option on NamUs. So, you can see the difficulty in a state where NamUs reporting isn't compulsory. So I asked the doctors if they'd had issues trying to find the specific numbers they needed for the state. The short answer is yes. There is really no data set. That's, that's one of the main issues, is that there is not really a place that's been collecting this information. And like you said, Laura, some of the categories, even across national systems, have different racial terms, racial categories. For example, in the state of Mississippi, you'll see a lot of individuals that say black slash white for their racial category. Are they, do I, do I culturally identify as one group or another? Do they visually look like one group or another? Those are some of those anthropological questions we're looking at, too. Doctors Goliath and Lytton Cox's repository is providing opportunities for their anthropology students to learn as they help enter and study data on missing and unidentified people. But they're hoping to attract students outside their department, too, from all over the university, ones who might connect with their work. They're especially interested in making sure BIPOC students at the school find out about the project. Dr. Goliath explained how he introduced the idea of the repository in his classes. I show data sets to my intro to bio students, my intro to forensic students about who goes missing in the United States and what happens to those people, that there is a disparity in who goes missing and 
the recovery of those people before I even mention anything about the repositories to give them kind of a context. And I've had students just because of that lecture come up to me, ask me, oh, I want to get more involved in this database. I want to get more involved in this research. And so from those initial conversations, a lot of student effort has been involved in trying to get early stages of data entry, as well as helping us build up our website in terms of the information they would like to see, general survey questions about what would they like to see once we have this website up, what are some social media potential connections to this website that they would like to see. And so a lot of the early initiation of this project was from student feedback. How would they like this data to be presented? What are the social media platforms that they would like to see this on? And ultimately involving them early on the data entry and kind of even some of the early website development. Similarly, in some of my classes, specifically my cultural anthropology class and a class that I taught on race and ethnicity. I've shared our work with my students, and I particularly done this when it is connected to topics that we're talking about, like race and ethnicity and identity. I think students here are really keenly aware of the fact that this is an issue in their area, and they, they really want to be involved. And so we hope that we will continue to have more students working on this project, specifically in the data entry and maybe even eventually in the data analysis area, both so they can have these skills, but also so that they can feel that they're a part of something bigger as far as this work is concerned. Data entry is a phrase that you've heard a lot in this episode, but take a second to think about what it actually means. Students get the chance to enter cases into the system, either from old missing persons reports, law enforcement files, current releases, or even media. And when they review that information, they pick out facts and review carefully how a missing person or victim was described. Then they're going to naturally consider what clues might point to issues that could be preventing an identification. A perfect example of this problem has come up multiple times in our discussions with members of the Transdo Task Force. If a decedent is found who responders assume is male-identified but is in feminine clothing, that clothing is often not described in detail. And that is an issue, because normally, clothing descriptions and reports are highly detailed, down to colors, labels, and sizes. But if a perceived male is in a dress, you'll often see something general in the notes, like, was wearing a dress. No size, no color, no description. So, little identifying detail is included, and you have to ask yourself, why? If students can look through sources to add additional information, they're not only improving a listing, they're going to learn about the biases that Dr. Goliath mentioned early in this interview. Once students and faculty analyze all the data on multiple levels, they will address making it accessible. That's a goal Drs. Linton Cox and Goliath mentioned early on in the interview. We asked them how they might achieve that goal, and they told us that, quote, both raw data and the context behind that data, in terms of socioeconomic factors, health resources, and time since recovery, will be available to the general public and researchers, with personal identifiable information restricted, and also to law enforcement. End quote. So, what that means on a practical level is that their research will not be paywalled, like so much research is now, in academic journals that limit access. When their data is freely available, the media can use it in reporting and disseminate it. Nonprofits can use it. 
government agencies can easily access it. And most importantly, anyone with internet access can read about their work right on the website. So Dr. Goliath and especially Dr. Linton Cox, I'm sure this is something you can speak to as a cultural anthropologist. Dr. Goliath, when I interviewed you for my book, one thing that you stressed, and I know a lot of your colleagues have stressed as well, is that to be a good forensic anthropologist, you need to be a good anthropologist. You need to get out of the lab and you need to understand the region that you live in and the people who live there, because that will help you to identify the unidentified. And I would love to know how this project will help your students to do so. How does engaging in the cultural aspect of anthropology make them better forensic anthropologists through this project? And conversely, Dr. Linton Cox, how can cultural anthropology students learn from the forensic work that's involved? Laura, that, that's something that I've always focused this biocultural approach. Biology and culture work together to create a better story, a better picture, a better data set. And so as a forensic anthropologist, yes, we're looking at bones and using bones to help identify people, but they are still people that have their own culture, their own history, their own experiences. And so with this repository, with understanding the history of medical legal system, but also the current medical legal system, and the impacts of the laws we have in place, the socioeconomic factors that influence why people go missing or why they're unrecoverable is just as essential as how do we look at bones to tell us about sex, age, ancestry, or any other factors to help identify that person. That these are both things that need to work together to give you an actual context of who that person is. I think for my cultural anthropology students, projects like this really help them understand the breadth of what cultural anthropology can do. That often we think about there's like this divide between the different fields. But in reality, there's a lot of synergy. I don't love that word, but it's the one that comes to mind. I noticed that you've already set up active social media accounts for the repository, which I think is great and something that I wish that more databases had that are focusing on missing and unidentified people. And I'd love to know how you envision those social media accounts serving the database and perhaps interacting with the public. So from the very beginning, one thing I did find initially with these clearinghouses like NamUs and others is that there was no real way to engage the public. It was more of any time I mentioned NamUs in talks and presentations, people like, what is this? What is this about? What does NamUs do? And so the easiest way for me to kind of get our initial footing with the public, with Mississippians, with students, with law enforcement agencies, the easiest way to do that was through social media. And so we have a Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at missing in MS is our handle. And what we're trying to do is highlight certain cases that have come up recently that we think need more advertising, I would say, or even just more of a platform. What the social media accounts will do is share both active and cold cases, including photos, statistics, and contact information on multiple social media platforms in the way that's been so successful for both the NICMEC and the Black and Missing Foundation. Because the database is Mississippi-specific, a strong local following and a following in surrounding states will be especially helpful and effective in resolving both missing persons and unidentified persons' cases. It's another way to make data that researchers engage with more accessible to the public. 
the public will also have the ability to interact with the database. In fact, the repository will take submissions from law enforcement, experts, and citizens, and it can be reached at their email, missingnms at msstate.edu. Don't worry, we'll be sure to include that information in our show notes. That's another factor that will make the database more dynamic. There are few professionally run databases that allow the public to submit missing persons or potential matches for DOE cases, and the Mississippi Repository is going to allow both. This will allow for more thorough reporting than other national databases may be able to offer. Dr. Goliath tells us that the repository currently has recorded more missing persons cases in the state than NamUs has listed. There will also be a version of the mapping feature available to the public as well. We'll be able to view map markers of clusters so we can understand, along with the researchers, where cases are occurring in Mississippi. I asked the professors how locals and listeners can support their work and other similar projects in our own states. First, I just wanted to say that those who are interested in this, if you see missing people or if there are family members who have posted on social media about missing people, please share that. Please let others know because we have these larger connections through social media that can get a voice out there to a potential person that has gone missing or run away or someone who may be a silver amber alert that the more eyes that are on these cases, the better. But really in terms of finding missing people and engaging, a lot of it's community activism, community engagement, getting in touch with your local community organizations, NAACP and other organizations that are trying to actively bring awareness to missing, to the unidentified, to potentially those who don't really have that voice, those marginalized in our society. So to engage with your local communities, to be an advocate for those missing, as well as helping those repositories and those other database websites. Dr. Linton Cox also wanted to be sure that we mentioned another related project that she and Dr. Goliath are working on right now, a field school project focused on other Mississippians who've passed on. Dr. Goliath and I both are also on a project that is looking at preserving a historically Black cemetery here in Starksville, Mississippi, which is where we live, and teaching students how to do the work of preserving and honoring these sites. So this is a broader effort to really honor the voices of people in the state who historically may not have been heard. How do we use our skills as anthropologists to highlight their stories? Drs. Goliath and Linton Cox will be utilizing archival research, work in the cemetery itself, interviews with descendants of those buried at the cemetery, and use of other records to help with improving record-keeping for the cemetery. There's also the chance to help answer the question of who is buried in graves where markers may have shifted or even been removed. If you'd like to learn more about this experience, we'll include a link in the show notes as well. The Mississippi Repository for the Missing and Unidentified will be launching in a few short weeks, and we'd love for our audience, most especially in the South, to follow their accounts and share their social posts, and to flag cases of missing and unidentified people in Mississippi that you see. The more complete the database, the better it will be. If you know of a case that should be featured on the fall line, there's a link for our case submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening. 
Fall Line is an independently produced show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to pay for the Millbrook Twins billboard and to fund therapy for families who've been on the show. Every one of our patrons helps to continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release, ad-free versions of our regular episodes for $5 a month. If you prefer Apple Premium, we've begun that feat as well, so you have an alternative way to contribute. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd, Liz Lipka, and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, monthly donations are going to Season of Justice, to support their testing and family grant initiatives.